Let's pray together. Father, uh, as we come now to consider um, your word, uh, these words of Paul, we ask that you will uh, sharpen our minds, sharpen our focus. Will you uh, bring up the questions that we need to ask? Will you challenge us where we need to be challenged? Will you comfort us where we need to be comforted? Will you in all things uh, show us Jesus Christ? And we ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated, and it would be helpful if you would turn back to page 12. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we are uh, going to be looking at just really one line uh, of that reading from Colossians. Um, just in case you got a little bit lost, that whole reading from Colossians on page 12, all the he refers to Jesus. So if, if that got confused, then just that uh, reorients us just a little bit. But we're going to get there in a moment. One of the things uh, that is about Christianity that's really easy to miss, um, but partially it's easy to, easy to miss because it's so patently obvious, is that um, Christians, when we are at our best, are absolutely captivated by Jesus Christ. Now, that may seem so obvious, it's like, Jim, um, that's not even worth saying. Well, it is worth saying. And, and the reason is that Christians, when we are at our best, are worth, or are, are absolutely captivated by Jesus in ways that are a little bit different than what you might obviously expect. Uh, Christians um, find Jesus inspirational. But it's way more than that. Um, it's not just that Christians follow Jesus' ethical teachings, for instance. Now, we must, but it's far more than that. It's not just that Christians consider Jesus to be the founder of our religion and therefore um, we think he's kind of cool. No, it's far more than that. There is a bond, when Christians are at our best, there is a bond between Jesus and the Christian or Jesus and the church that is really surprisingly strong. Um, we have a, um, a letter from a, a Roman governor called, great names back then, Pliny. His name was Pliny. I don't know. I I think that's kind of fun. Pliny the Younger, as it happens. And, um, and he, we have this letter where he writes about how he persecuted Christians, which is kind of fun. And, um, and the interesting thing about this letter is that the thing that really offended Rome about the Christians was not primarily their, uh, their behavior. The thing that really offended them was their loyalty and their bond with Jesus Christ. And when he talks about uh, his uh, tactics at trying to persecute Christians, what he did is he tried to break that bond if he could. So what he what he says is he he he, he brings them in, he tortures them, and then he he says uh, everything will stop if you curse Christ, and and and, you, and you'll be fine. Now the thing that's interesting there, besides the fact it's horrible, the thing that's interesting there, is that he believed. Somehow he intuited that if he could break the bond between the Christian and Jesus, that then he would have been able to break the very heart of Christianity. And I think he was right. Not right in what he did, but right in his analysis. 
The bond between Christians and Jesus can be remarkable. We have another story about uh, an, another um, fun name, Polycarp. Do you know Polycarp? Um, Polycarp uh, knew some of, the, some of the apostles and outlived them. And when he was an old man, he was arrested by the Romans. He was brought in. He was tortured. And then once again, similarly, they said, Polycarp, you can go free. Just curse Christ. And this is what he said. He said, Four score and six years, I have been Christ's servant. 86 years. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Now, here's what I find remarkable about that. The thing that is motivating Polycarp in the midst of torture is not simply moral fortitude. He's not sitting there going, you know, it's a hard time, but I should really just do the right thing. He is motivated by personal love. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? There's something else there. It's something stronger than just moral fortitude. All right, why am I saying all this? Well, I'm saying this because we're continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And you'll remember if you've been with us that Paul has been coaching this young church in Colossae on how to to really live out Jesus' vision for a church. And we've been listening along and applying it to ourselves. Now, here's the thing that starts in this passage, and we're going to see that it is a theme throughout Colossians. Here it is. Paul says, if you want to be a church that lives out Jesus' vision, the center of it, the crucial piece, is this bond, personal bond of love and affection and trust with Jesus Christ. And so right here, he has this whole reading where he just talks about who Jesus is. And so what we're going to do is we're going to slow down over the next weeks, and we're going to go through it kind of line by line, not quite, but a little bit faster than that, but a little bit line by line, and simply look at who Jesus is and ask the question, why is he worth this bond of trust, loyalty, affection? Why is he worth it? And we're going to relate it to our vision statement. Our vision statement here at Emmanuel is Emmanuel exists to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. When we say the beauty of Jesus Christ, we're trying to capture that bond with Jesus. Where does that come from? All right. Today, I want to show you one thing. Well, sorry, two things. Jesus is beautiful and worthy of our trust, affection, loyalty, bond. Because he answers two critical questions. He answers the question, who is God? And he answers the question, who am I? Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at verse uh, 15, just the first few phrases. Paul writes this. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now stop there. We're going to take a bigger chunk next week, but today we're just going to focus there. Now, In saying that line, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, um, Paul is addressing a question that sort of hangs over all humanity. And the question that hangs over all humanity is the question, who is God? Now you say, well, it hangs over religious people. Well, yeah, it does. But even non-religious people, at one point or another in their lives, have to come to the question, who is God? Is there a God? Am I going to pay attention and ask that question more fully? In fact, even, I would argue, atheists. There's a way in which atheists, that very name, uh, 
gives them an identity that says, that is a question I'm going to distance myself from. But nevertheless, it hangs over us all. And it's a, obviously a crucial question in uh, the biblical story. It's a question that goes right through the entirety of the Bible. So what I want to do is kind of back up, go back to the beginning of the Bible, create some context, and then come back to what Paul's saying. Okay? Go with me. Uh, go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis, first book of the Bible. And if you're familiar with it, you'll know that it tells the story of how God created everything. God created the universe. God created the universe good, beautiful, and God created humanity. And um, Genesis says that, that God created humanity in his own image, which means a variety of things, but it means at least this, that God created humanity, designed humanity to know him in a bond of personal love, and then secondly, to reflect him or to represent him to the natural world around them. Now... If you know the story, you know everything went wrong, right? Um, you have Adam and Eve. Uh, God gave, put Adam and Eve in this garden. He says, hey, listen, the whole garden's yours. Go crazy. Eat from every tree. But there's just this one. Don't eat from that tree, but eat from all the other trees. Um, and then, do you remember the story? The serpent, the snake. The snake comes in and tempts Adam and Eve. Now, do you remember how the snake tempts Adam and Eve? Here's what he doesn't do. The snake does not market the apple. That's what we all think he does, but he doesn't. He doesn't say, an apple for my pretty? You know, that, that's not what he does. What, what, I mean, what he does is he asks the question, who is God? In so many words, I'll paraphrase this just a little bit, but he, he comes up to Eve and he says, hey, Eve, do you really know God? Are you sure? Are you sure you can trust him? And then it's as if Satan says, so to speak, listen, I've been around for a little while. God and I, we got a history. It's complicated. Take it from me. He's not who you think he is. He's not your father. He's your tyrant. He's trying to keep you down. You can't trust him, but you know who you can trust. Who you can trust, the only person you can trust, is you. Trust yourself. Trust your desires. And at that point, he can back up. He doesn't need to market the fruit at all because Eve's made her choice. Now, the thing to point out, though, is that Satan's aim is exactly the aim of Pliny the Younger, the Roman governor. What he wants to do is he wants to try to break the bond between Adam and Eve on the one hand and God on the other. And the snake does that by, in a, in a way, obscuring or veiling who God is. He wants to veil God's goodness, veil God's trustworthiness, so that Adam and Eve, all they can see when they think about God, is simply a distortion of who God really is. And all of a sudden, God looks ugly. And so they go to the next more beautiful thing they can find. And it works. Adam and Eve uh, jettison that bond of relationship with God. And in the biblical tradition, that break in relationship is what explains that question that hangs over all of humanity. We can't get away from it. Who is God? Is he there? If he is, is he trustworthy? Okay. Take all of that and come back to Colossians. 
When Paul says Jesus Christ, Colossians, is the image of the invisible God, what he's saying is Colossians were mostly of Greek background, probably, but they knew their Old Testament. He was saying, Colossians, Jesus answers that question, who is God? And he answers it differently than what you expect. Paul's point is that when you see the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of a sudden, that's the moment when you get to see God with pristine clarity. Let me put it a little differently. Paul's saying, listen, the good news is that the veiling of God is over. All down through history, humanity has wondered about who God might be, if God is there, and if there's something that might fill that gap that we call God. But the problem is, the best we can do, very often, the best we can do is to kind of look at the world around us and then in our imagination kind of extrapolate what kind of God might be behind a world like this. And what we come out with is a God who is perhaps beautiful, but also terrifying. And Paul says that that's not what Jesus is. Jesus is not the God of our imagining. And this is the good news. Paul says that God is, or Jesus is the God of God's own unveiling. And therefore, because God has unveiled himself, God can be known. And because God can be known, this bond of love with God can be reestablished. This has huge implications. Um, All of us here struggle with doubt. Some of us here are Christians who struggle with with doubt. Some of us here are not Christians, and we're trying to figure out what to believe. There are many reasons to trust Jesus Christ. Here's one. Jesus presented a view of God that no one in his day expected. Why is that? Why does that matter? You know, a lot of people uh, think that, that the idea of God is simply the imaginary projection of a culture's highest values, right? Which makes sense. You gotta, and that's probably true a lot of the time. In fact, um, down through the history of the church, undoubtedly, um, different cultures uh, have tried to take Jesus and reshape Jesus into the image of their own culture. That happens all the time. But that's not what Jesus was in his original context. Jesus defied the expectations of both the Jewish community and the Greek community. He he defied the expectations of the Jewish community because they were expecting a Messiah, but they weren't expecting the God of the Old Testament to show up in person. And on the other hand, he defied the expectations of the Greeks because the Greeks thought the whole idea, they had all kinds of ideas about God, but certainly the idea of God becoming human was ridiculous to them. Jesus defied all the expectations about God. He is not the projection of that culture's imagination about God. He is not the God of anyone's imagining. And the Colossians who first heard this, for them, Jesus was better than any God that they had ever imagined. Because when they looked at Jesus Christ, just think about what he meant for the Colossians, what he meant for a man like Polycarp. When they looked at Jesus, they saw a God that wasn't what they were expecting, but was far better. Because for the first time, they saw a God who pursued them. Not just a God that stood out and said, 
I demand sacrifices. Serve me. Rather, they found a God who said, yeah, you must serve me, but I must serve you first. I will pursue you. I will suffer for you. I will accomplish all things necessary for your reconciliation, even though you have rejected my reconciliation time and again. And the moment the Colossians and the other first Christians began to see that Jesus was a kind of God that they had never anticipated before, they saw that he was beautiful, and they, that was the moment that that bond with Jesus Christ began to be established, first a bond of trust, then a bond of love, and a bond that is the hallmark of all true Christianity. Bring it back to us. Christians, therefore, deal with doubt not by shutting our eyes and trying to believe blindly. Please don't do that. If you're tempted to stop, okay? Christians deal with doubt by opening your eyes and looking at Jesus and bringing all of your worst, hardest trouble and questions to him until you see he may not answer them in the way you expect, But as you look at him, he will show himself to be a God who is more beautiful than you can anticipate. So what accounts for this bond? Well, Jesus shows us who God is, and he's better than we imagined. But then there's a second part. Look back at Paul. Because the second thing is that Jesus also answers the question, who am I? What does it mean to be human? Who am I supposed to be? Why do I say that? Well, uh, go back to Genesis. Remember in Genesis, uh, it says that God created humanity in his own image, right? Same word used here. The idea was, among other things, that humanity was supposed to know God, be experience that bond of union with God, and then reflect God to the world around them. The problem is... I mean, that that was humanity's true vocation. That that was what we were supposed to be about. And and you think about, um, this is going to be a stupid example, okay? I like dogs. Do you like dogs? Okay, okay. Sheepdogs. Sheepdogs. Have you ever seen a sheepdog be a sheepdog? You you watch a sheepdog be a sheepdog not by looking at a sheepdog at a dog show, okay? They're pretty, but a sheepdog is meant to herd sheep. Right? You haven't really seen a sheepdog be a sheepdog until you see the sheepdog doing what sheepdogs are supposed to do. Silly example. I'm sorry. Humans, human flourishing is defined by knowing God and reflecting God. Which means, which means that because none of us have ever really experienced that perfect knowing God and reflecting him well, because all of us have experienced the brokenness of that bond, because of that, then in one sense, we've, none of us have ever seen someone who is fully being human, fully doing what humans are meant to do. The problem is not simply that we can't see God. The problem is that we don't know who we are. And therefore, hanging over humanity is that other question. Who am I? What does it mean to be human? What am I supposed to be? It's one of the questions that we can't get away from, and it is thoroughly vexing. And that's why verse 15 is so bold. Because Paul is saying, not only does Jesus unveil God, 
Jesus unveils humanity. Jesus is the real human. Jesus is the one who has perfect bond with God and reflects him perfectly. Therefore, when you look at Jesus, you are looking at humanity the way humanity was always meant to be. He is the standard for human flourishing. And therefore, he's the only one that can answer, who am I? But here's the twist. In Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is the image of God. In Colossians chapter 3, we get shaped back into the image of God. What do I mean by that? According to Paul, as our bond with Jesus becomes stronger, Jesus reshapes us to resemble him. So the closer we get to Jesus, the stronger that bond, the more human we become. So that Polycarp, as he's standing there saying, how can I blaspheme my king who saved me because I love him? That is real humanity. He knows who he is. And therefore, if I want to be who God designed me to be, do you have that question? If I want to be who God designed me to be, then the only thing for me to do is to come to Jesus and to trust him and to invite him to change me, to challenge my deepest identities, to my, my preferences, my loves, my ambitions, and to work within me and reorient me until, I, until he becomes my fundamental desire, my fundamental love. Jesus shows us who God is, shows us who we are meant to be, and invites us there. And that's why in our vision statement, we say Emmanuel Anglican Church exists to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. There's a lot there. But when we talk about the beauty of Christ, we're trying to capture that that bond with Christ animates everything else. It shows us who God is, and it reshapes us into a humanity that can truly bless the world around us, particularly the city. Now, let me close. But if all that's true, then it should shape us in a lot of ways, but I'm going to point out three. Here's the first one. If Jesus really is the beauty of God and the beauty of humanity, then uh, we as a church should be, we should be totally focused on worship. Worship should be our joy. Why? Worship is when we uh, receive Christ by faith and respond to him in love it's the strengthening of that bond with Jesus Christ. And we do it when we gather in all sorts of ways. We, we listen to the word of God. We sing. We receive the sacraments. Um, we pray. But we also worship when we go out, when we scatter into our workplaces, into our homes, and in all the other places where we are supposed to continually be receiving Christ by faith, reflecting him to himself and to the world around us. We need to be, that has to be central. Secondly, transformation needs to be central. Um, if Jesus is the standard of human flourishing, then we don't reshape him to look like us. He reshapes us to look like him. And that means he's going to challenge us. So if you don't want to be challenged, I'm sorry, but it's a good kind of challenge. Expect it. Desire it. 
pray for it. When you see it happening in you and in other people, rejoice in it and tell that story. We have to be all about transformation. Lastly, we need to be patient with each other. Um, trust, you know, the bond with Jesus begins with trust. Trust takes time. And therefore, there's going to be some of us who are just trying to figure out whether or not Jesus is somebody that we can trust. If that's where you are, we are delighted that you're here. We're delighted that you're here. Others of us are going to be struggling in various points. We need to be patient with each other. But our job, because it takes time to build trust, but our job as a church is to wherever each individual is at in that process, our job is to hold up Jesus Christ and to present him as he presents himself in Scripture. We are to present him as accurately as we can, expecting that sometimes that's going to be uncomfortable because Jesus makes everybody uncomfortable. And as that happens, as that happens, Jesus will reshape and and strengthen that bond with himself we will become more truly human as we see that he is true God. And Emmanuel will be delighted with the beauty of God and we will bless our city. Amen? Amen.